We're in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be back in Hebrews in the weeks to come, so hopefully you'll stick around as we continue in that series. But this week, uh, I've just been really, uh, this passage especially has been put on my mind. Uh, I've referenced, I don't know how many times, uh, this particular letter of Paul's, the letter of 2 Corinthians. I find it the most fascinating of all of Paul's letters, only because of what it does. Um, As we've said before, it's a letter where Paul is almost in self-defense mode. He's writing from a standpoint standpoint of self-defense almost, as the Corinthian believers have called into question his authority, his his sort of standing, his office as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he writes very personally. He gets into, uh, into some discussions and into some matters that he doesn't in other letters and other places. But what's also fascinating is just what he talks about throughout this letter, but especially here. You know, as when you're applying for a job. Let's say you're needing a job, perhaps you're a young person looking for a summer job. One of the most important pieces of information or one of the most important items in your arsenal is going to be a resume. In its most basic of forms, a resume, what it will do is list all of your work history, your work background, and it'll tally all of the skills that you have that might be relevant for the job that you're applying for. You know, other items you might include are, you know, your education, a, a short bio about yourself, maybe perhaps some references of people that are going to vouch for your work, work ethic. You're, you're putting your best foot forward. That's what a resume is. And actually, there's lots of effort. There's actually a lot of, of really careful precision that has to go in to making a resume. A perfectly worded resume is no small task. In fact, you can find countless workshops and classes and seminars online on how to write a resume. You don't just list things willy-nilly. It's, it's, there's a lot of attention that has to be put into that. Because again, that's what you're doing. When you hand a potential employer a resume, you are literally and quite figuratively putting your best foot forward. This is why I'm the best candidate for the job that you have open. You're cataloging all of your best accomplishments, your best talents, your best experiences. And you're packaging it all up so they can read it in one shot. And I'm positive that if you, I've never taken a resume writing workshop, but if, if I'm, I'm positive that if you did, none of them would advise you to, you know, put on, uh, put on there the class that you got a D in or, you know, that group project that just failed miserably or the job that you were asked to leave after the first week. <laughs> you don't, it's not like you're lying about them. You just don't, you know, put information that they don't ask about on there. <laughs> You let them bring that up if they choose to. But what a resume is, it's all of your best qualities. All of your finest achievements. And that's a silly way of introducing this section, but I think it's important. Because literally what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, in a manner of speaking, is sort of just unfurling, unfolding his resume as an apostle. That's, if, you, if you look at those chapters from that frame of mind, it'll help, I think, guide what he's talking about, what he's doing, and why he's saying the things that he's saying. And that's actually what makes it so surprising. Because as Paul is detailing this resume of his, 
It's surprising what he doesn't list. He doesn't talk about, you know, if he's wanting to defend the fact that he is an apostle of Lord Jesus Christ, you would probably perhaps think of some certain things that he would point to as evidence that he is an apostle. All of the churches he's founded, all of the amazing ministries he started, all of the people he's led to the Lord Jesus, all of the things that he's been able to achieve under his ministry. In fact, that's not at all what he points to. In fact, if you could body up Paul's resume on a piece of paper, a big headline at the top would be, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's the opposite of what anyone might do if they were telling you to write a resume. He doesn't detail all of those things he succeeded at in ministry throughout all of the years he's been ministering for the Lord Jesus. Instead, the things that he boasts in are what? His own weaknesses. Look at chapter 11, verse 30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. Look at verse 5 of our text. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my, own, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Look at verse 9 again, that verse that we read. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. This is a resume writing no-no. You don't, you don't boast in the things where you're weak. Every, every resume writing coach would probably tell Paul that he's off his rocker at this point. And I think actually Corinthians, the Corinthian church believed the same thing. Especially when you consider the fact that Paul had a resume that everyone would die for. Everyone wanted Paul's resume if you looked at it from a certain point of view. Uh, All of the things that he's been able to achieve. And he hints at it in chapter 11. Look at verse 21. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. It sounds like Paul's bragging. This sort of reminds me of what he does in Philippians chapter 3. Actually, just go with me. You'll get another sense of Paul's resume, if you will. In Philippians chapter 3, where he talks about all of the things that he could boast in. Look at Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 4, where he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's listing off, he's rattling off his resume. The reasons why his resume is better than anyone else's. No one could argue with Paul's pedigree. He was the cream of the crop. A pure Hebrew from pure Hebrew heritage. Educated in the most elite theological school of that day. He had the most going for him. If you looked at Paul's religious resume, it was pretty much unbeatable. But on top of all of that, even too, he had something else he could play. He could play an even way, a way better trump card than any of that. Why? Because he'd been to heaven and back. He details that at the beginning of chapter 12. 
with this story he tells of a man he once knew who was caught up to the third heaven. Notice verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Of course, as you might know, uh, even though Paul is sort of guarding his words... The, the man, the quote-unquote man that he's talking about is himself. The man who was given the revelation in verse 1 is the same man who is given a thorn in the flesh because of said revelations in verse 7. It's Paul. He's talking about himself. Where now, for perhaps the first time in 14 years, in any sort of public way, he's revealing a secret he's held for 14 years. About this time where he was taken by God and given a glimpse of paradise is the word that we can use there. A glimpse of heaven. He saw things there that he could not explain. He heard things that he could not repeat. And depending on your timing of this, this this occurs perhaps either before or right in the middle of that first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. He wasn't even sure whether this was a dream or whether it was an actual physical experience. That's what he means by repeating whether in the body or out of the body. I'm not sure. Whether he was actually caught up or whether he was just given a vision. He's not entirely sure. All he knows, this really happened. And it really happened because it happened to me. And I was there. I was with Jesus. I was with God Almighty. I was there seeing everything in glory, in paradise. And I can't even really tell you about it. Words he could not repeat. Visions he could not explain. And the point is this. Anyone else would have made a name for themselves off of that one experience. Anyone else, if they had been caught up into heaven, they had caught up and seen all the things that perhaps he had saw, they would have come back boasting about the fact that they had seen into the halls of heaven. you got to listen to me, because I've seen it. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. They would have written books about it. They would have become a bestseller. They would have shared lectures about it. They probably would have turned it into a movie. <laughs> they would have made it their platform. I'm the one who saw into heaven. If Paul's revelation happened to someone in our day, we would definitely know about it. They would be featured on Oprah. I'm certain of it. <laughs> and this is the sort of thing that Paul's resume writing coach would have insisted he include. You've been you gotta include that on there. That that really make that really leans people into really believing you, Paul. But again, listen to his words. <laughs> Rather than boast about it, Paul has kept this experience to himself for 14 years. And only at the much, much coaxing and really pleading and and much coercion does he ever even share this. He's not even looking to share all this. And again, he could. Notice verse 6. He says, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He says, I could boast and it really wouldn't be boasting because it would be true. 
But I'm not because I don't want you to get the wrong impression of me. <laughs> it's sort of a, uh, there's this stand-up comedian that I like to watch sometimes. His name is Brian Regan. And he has this funny little joke. And it's, I'm, I'm going to botch up the joke, so you'll probably have to go watch it later. But I'll try and do my best. But basically he has this little bit where he talks about how he wishes that he could have been one of the astronauts to walk on the moon. Because he knows if he was an astronaut who walked on the moon, he could beat anyone's story at any dinner party. You know, if someone's rattling off about all their accomplishments, he could just slide in there and say, I've walked on the moon. Game over. He has the best story possible. No one can beat that story. No one has a better story than saying, yeah, I drove the lunar rover through the sea of tranquility. No story about driving beats that story. <laughs> and I think you could apply the same thing to Paul. He knows in the back of his, hand, back of his mind, he has the best trump card. Doesn't matter what anyone else is talking about. Whatever religious experience they have, he's been to heaven. <laughs> I've been to paradise. But he never plays it. He never plays that trump card. He never goes there. Why? Because <laughs> he's not boasting about himself. And again, even here, all the times where he's talking about bragging and boasting, he's not boasting of himself. You have to understand what Paul is doing. He's taking the church of Corinth at their own game. He really had zero interest in doing this and spouting off this resume and spouting off all of these things that he had seen and, and, and the things that he had accomplished. He was not keen on talking about himself. That's why he says in verse 1 of our text, there's nothing to be gained by this. I don't really want to do this, but you're forcing my hand. And indeed... This church really had to force his hand because of this so-called group that Paul names the super apostles. Look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commanded, or excuse me, commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. I've played the fool, Paul says. And I've gone on foolishly boasting about all these things. But I've done it because you forced me to do it. You see, there's this group that Paul lovingly titles the super apostles. That's meant to be a jab at them. These guys who think they're so superior to others, who had rose to popularity, especially in this church at Corinth. They were preaching this message. Notice verse number 1 of chapter 11. You get a sense of kind of what they were talking about. I wish, Paul says, you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus... Than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a little different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. You see... These super apostles, as Paul calls them, had rose to prominence, specifically in the church of Corinth. 
Corinth, excuse me, and they were leading people to sort of drop the doctrines of Paul, to drop the doctrines of the apostles in favor of these superior doctrines of these super apostles. Who, as Paul has just said, are preaching a different gospel about a different Jesus. Who, Paul would say in Galatians, there is no such thing. It's a false gospel. It's a false Jesus. You are being deceived. That's why he says, and he relates these super apostles to the serpent himself. Did you catch that? In verse 3, where he's talking about their, their doctrine teaching, it's just like the serpent and Eve. These guys are snakes in the weeds, my friends, he's saying to them. And basically, we could summarize these super apostles and their philosophies and their teachings to sort of what we could call today, in today's terminology, the prosperity gospel. It's that, that teaching, it's that lingo, this belief that those who believe in God are going to be blessed with health and wellness and six-figure bank accounts. They're not going to have troubles. You just got to have faith. And give me some seed money, too, to my ministry. If you do that, then these things will work out for you. If you do these things, if you believe, there won't be trouble. There won't be suffering. Suffering means something wrong. Something's wrong with your faith. It's the the sort of name it and claim it sort of preaching, which does little that's different from Dr. Phil or Oprah. What's put forward is a very loosely Christian-based message that has nothing... Of Christ in it. And though it might sound good. It might be well communicated. All it really succeeds in doing. Is deceiving people. Utterly. With the idea that following God. Means they won't have trouble following them. That's in a nutshell. What the Corinthians believed about Paul. As Paul has said at the very beginning of this letter, there was great trouble that came upon them, that delayed them, that stopped them, that prevented them from visiting this church. And because of the rise of the super apostles, now there's this thought, how could he really be the apostle? How could he really be a representative of God when there's so much trouble following him around? How could so much difficulty constantly bombard someone who stands for God? That really should be a disqualifier, shouldn't it? That's what these super apostles were trying to promote with all of their skillful speech and eloquent sermons. They used their personality and their charisma to gather a following and... Paul leaves less than impressed with these guys. Notice verse 13 of chapter 11. Notice what Paul says. Um, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13. For such men are false apostles. He doesn't miss words. Deceitful workmen. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Not only has he compared them to Satan, now he says they're servants of Satan. He doesn't have much in the way of fondness for these guys who are deceiving men with a false message of Christ. But the Corinthians are so caught up with these 
super apostles and their messages and their resumes of incredible spiritual experiences that Paul eventually concedes. He finally caves, and that's where he sort of succumbs to playing their own game, this game of comparing resumes. Look at verse 16 where he says this, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may too may boast a little... What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. <laughs> and then he goes on, to my shame, I must say, we, too, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. He's saying, okay, fine. You want to compare resumes? You want to pit both of the resumes of myself with these super apostles, if you want to call them that? I'll, I'll play along. I'll play the fool as long as it means you're going to listen to me. I'll play this game. I know this is probably not what Jesus would do, but this is what you're asking for. So here, I'm going to give you my resume. My resume for an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what makes all of that so stunning is that his greatest boast, his greatest sort of thing that he wants to glory in is not at all what we would expect. Again, what is it? It's not the churches he's planted. It's not the men he's discipled. It's not the fact that now he has uh, perhaps an even better uh, uh, disciple right next to him, the man of Timothy. It's not the fact that he started all these churches. What is his boast? His own weakness. Again, chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How could he say that? Why would he say that? This is not what a leader's resume should look like or should sound like, is it? This is especially not a church leader, right? You see, I think Paul had learned perhaps the greatest lesson anyone can learn on this side of eternity. Namely this, that in the final analysis, when all things are said and done, and we are brought to the end of all things, your strength, your success, your talents, your achievements won't amount to a hill of beans. The only thing that's going to matter is your dependence. Who are you depending on? Who and where is your faith in? Paul was certain of it. It's not in himself, it's... Not the things he's allowed to see and witness and achieve and accomplish. His dependence is on the Lord who, as he says, meets him in his, wit- in his weakness. This is what Paul is getting at when he sort of juxtaposes that exciting testimony of having a vision of paradise and heaven with that very much less than exciting testimony of that thorn in the flesh. Again, notice verse 7 of our text where he says, so to keep me. From being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. This is what he says. To prevent him from becoming arrogant. To prevent him from becoming too heady and high minded. God allowed a splinter to fester. To harass Paul. Now, there's lots of theories about what this thorn in the flesh might have been. Perhaps you've tried to figure out what it might be. The short answer is no one knows. As anyone's guess, we're never told what Paul was harassed with. 
Could have been some chronic condition, chronic ailment. Could have been poor eyesight. It could have been a, a, a many number of things. The point of all of this, though, is not to focus on what the thorn was. The point is to focus on the fact that it is a thorn that is allowed by God to be there. The vision was given by God and the thorn comes because of the vision that was given by God. So that the the one who received the vision wouldn't become too conceited, too heady and high minded of himself. Paul knows he calls this this malady, this ailment, whatever it was, a messenger of Satan. But the truth of it all is that this thorn was allowed to exist because God said so. And that's startling. We have to step back and think... Why would God do that? Why would God purposefully put an impediment on his greatest ambassador of his doctrine, of his message? Paul is a guy who could hardly be stopped. He could not be swayed from what he believed. He was a messenger of Christ, preaching Christ, sharing Christ, starting churches of Christ. Why would you sort of slow him down? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God not even answer Paul's prayers? Again, in verse 8, notice what happens. Three times he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this that should leave me. Three times he pleaded, God, take away this thorn. Get it out of my life. I could do so much more for your kingdom. God, would you please answer me? And three times he prays and three times... He's given somewhat of a non-answer. Because God didn't take it away. I don't know. I've wondered about that a lot. Why would God put an impediment on this man, Paul? Or maybe perhaps you're thinking about yourself in this time. And that's okay too. Maybe you're thinking about your own sort of thorn in the flesh. That God doesn't seem to want to take away. Because if you've asked him to. Whether it's a physical ailment that just won't leave you or whether it's some other thing that seems to be just a chronic thing. You're always dealing with some sort of chronic sin that you're saying, God, take that away. I don't ever want to stumble in that again. I don't ever want to feel that again. Why, God, why aren't you listening? I think Paul wondered the same sorts of things. And I think he asked the same sorts of questions. Which is why I think that answer that the God gives him is so significant. Again, verse 9. Paul is asking, take this away. And what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And now, again, for as memorable as these words are. I think we should just pause and and know how unexpected they are too. Because this is not really what Paul was asking for. God gives him an amazing answer. God speaks to him with this amazing sense of resolve. That the fact that he can have this grace. But really what he was praying for. What he was pleading for. Was this an escape from the thorns. God take the thorns away. And what does God tell him instead? There's more than enough grace. In me and with me to tread the through the thorns. And if I were Paul, if it were me, I would say, okay, but that's not really what I was wanting. <laughs> okay, that's not really what I was asking for. But you sense what God is doing in the life of Paul. 
Rather than just pluck that thorn out of Paul's life, what does God do? He invites him to drink from this well of grace for the rest of his life. A well that will never run dry. Paul, seek me. Paul, yes, depend upon me for the grace that you need to get through, to get by. It's more than enough to cover this thorn. You see, this thorn in Paul's side, whatever it might have been, was a catalyst for Paul's dependence and faith. He couldn't rely on his own strength. Because he was fully aware of just how weak he was. He lived with a constant, a daily reminder that all of his successes, all of his achievements, all of his great abilities were not the result of his brilliance, were not the result of his might. All of the things that he's achieved were not because he was an apostle. It was because God, in his all-sufficient grace, was working through what a weak, piddly little vessel Paul was. And the more he was brought face to face with that, the more he depended on the Lord to carry him through. And that's why Paul says, all the more gladly will I boast in my weaknesses, not because he relished in the fact that he had to carry this thorn in his side, but he relished in the fact that, yes, that's where God meets him. Paul's greatest boast, the headline of his resume, was all of his great weaknesses because he had learned this amazing piece of news that it was precisely in those weaknesses that he was brought face to face with the God of all things who likewise clothed himself in weakness too. You know, the the thing about that phrase that Jesus tells him, The Spirit tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Whose weakness was he talking about? Paul's, yes. But not just Paul's. It was his own. God's own weakness is made perfect right there. His strength is made perfect in what? In remembering what happens at the beginning of the Gospels. That wonderful story of God coming down and taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. What you see there is what? God clothing himself in the weakness of human flesh. As it says in Isaiah, that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows in a body that was just as weak and just as vulnerable to affliction as yours is and as mine was. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, as we've been going through, that in doing that, why did God do that? So that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he's felt them all. He's felt your weakness. He's endured it. He's gone through it. Contrary to what anyone else could have ever imagined, God chose specifically to demonstrate the full brilliance and might and extent of his power. How? By showing up in the form of a servant who dies. And more than just that, not only does he die... He dies in the most excruciating, the most harrowing display of weakness ever conceived. That's what that image of Jesus on the cross does for us. 
Jesus dying on a cross for a world full of sinners is the fullest indication of who God values. God values weak and wobbly sinners enough to take their place. To take their place of shame and sin and death. And to die in weakness just like them. But more than that though, he chooses to dwell with weak and wobbly sinners. John 1.14, that awesome verse where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is a bad translation. That word literally means to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. So the word became flesh and pitched its tent among us. Draws us back to the wilderness where the people of God were, were setting up and taking down the tabernacle. Everywhere they went, the presence of God was leading them through the pillar of, of smoke and the pillar of fire. But also the, the presence of the tabernacle itself. And yet in Jesus, all of that comes to fruition in the person of who he is. He is the presence of God in the form of flesh and bone. And yet here, even where Paul is here writing to this Corinthian church, that word rest in verse 9. Notice, therefore I will, gl- all, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As a related word, as a cousin of that word dwelt. It means to take up resonance so we could say this, that this is the full picture of what Paul is getting at. He could glory in weakness because the God of grace pitches his tent right there. God in Christ tabernacles with weak and wobbly sinners because weak and wobbly sinners are all that there are. And Paul says, that's where God is. That's where God is found. And weakness This was a message that was clearly running in opposition to the message of those superior apostles. Who were boasting in their resumes, their self-proclaimed spirituality, their superiority. Opposite of all that, what does Paul do? He boasts in a resume that is fraught with weakness because he knew that's where God was found. Contrary to what I think we often think. It's not our strength that ready us for God's service. It's our weaknesses. We are conditioned to think that our put-togetherness is what qualifies us to serve the Lord. When actually it's our dependence. You know, this, this I think is seen in how we approach going to church. Sometimes I think we approach going to church like we're Cinderella going to a ball. You have to clean yourself up. You have to put on the right dress. Otherwise you won't fit in. Otherwise you're not allowed in. No one else can enter in. So in our own self-made efforts of self-righteousness, we bippity-boppity-boo some masks of put-togetherness. <laughs> and we walk into church hoping no one notices. Hoping no one sees through the mask we just put on. And the irony is, so long as we are going to church 
in our dresses of pretense and self-righteousness and put-togetherness. We are going to the one place where all pretense can be put aside. Where we are free to drop all of the senses that we are put together in and of ourselves. Because this is the place where God's enoughness is given to us in his son Jesus. That's what this place is. That's what the church is. It's not a sanctuary of put together people. This church is a hospital for broken people who are weak and know that they are. And know that Jesus is the only one who can put together broken people. So we can come here without masks. Without pretending. Without trying to fake that we have it all put together. Because Jesus already knows that we don't. The world is not desperate for more Christians who are tooting their own horns and singing the praises of their own piety. You know what the world is desperate for? I think they're desperate to see a God that never hesitates in embracing those who are weak and broken. That's what you do when you come to church. Have you ever heard that phrase that I don't want to go to church because that's where all the hypocrites grow? Welcome to the club. Your greatest witness to the world is is your willingness to confess right along with Paul that I am weak, that I am nothing. But because of who God is, that's what makes me strong. It's not Paul, it's not his abilities, it's not what he has accomplished. It's God working through weak vessels, working through weak sinners, because weak sinners are all that there are. As soon as anyone gets their eyes on themselves in ministry, yes, including this dear old poor pastor, the ministry is going to crumble. The ministry is going to fall apart. I've said before and I'll say it again, my words are nothing. My words are peanuts. It's God's words that are powerful. He's the one that makes us effective. He's the one that makes ministry effective, that makes the light shine. We are not light enough of ourselves. We reflect the light of the world that is implanted in us through his spirit. I pray that we as a church are a church that rejoices in weakness. Because we know that God pitches his tent right there. (laughs) He comes to dwell. He comes to tabernacle with weak sinners. And through them, change the world with the message of his grace. May that be our prayer. May that be our resume. Let us pray.